Welcome back, everybody, and we're going to be doing another episode of Community Unity. And today we actually are joined by a very special guest. They like to go by Mala Madre, Dr. Duran, and this is somebody who I hold very dear to my heart. Um, her name is Victoria Duran. She's an educator. She's a mom. She's an abolitionist teacher, and she's a whole lot of really amazing things. So I'm super stoked to have her, and we're going to be having a conversation a little bit about Black Mexico and abolitionist work and current abolitionist work more specifically. So, Dr. Duran, how are you? I am thankful to be here with you back in the classroom, especially just having had like just our connection form in the classroom and see it grow and develop. I think it's been like six or six years since maybe five years since you were yes. a student. Um, and I just am honored to receive the questions that you have and just really inspired by seeing you grow your platform. Um, so I'm very excited. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and after that introduction, I'm just like, that is it. That's it for the day. I'm feeling honored. All right. So I do want to get into a little bit about Black Mexico, because a lot of people, when they think of Mexico, they don't think of Black people or African people. And you also brought up to me when you were unearthing your ancestry, you actually found out that one of your grandmothers was actually a Black woman from Mexico. And I wanted to ask you, like, how was that process of unearthing and what kind of emotions did it bring up for you? You are referring to my great-grandmother, Juliana, from Nuevo León, Mexico. And she is from my maternal side. When I would speak to my maternal grandmother, she would describe it was her suegra uh, as this dark woman, dark. And asking these questions and, you know, describing her as this black woman, and I would ask, you know, how does then blackness show up within the family and what was the relationship? Because this is my my grandmother's, my mother's grandmother on her dad's side. And the feelings, the emotions when excavating this research, right, within the family is grief, too, because the family is torn from that lineage and those were a lot of stories that were not told to me. Um, and I think there's like layers to it because of the ways that trauma shows up and distancing from various forms of trauma from my grandfather's side. With that also comes the distancing of blackness and recognizing that there is a duty and responsibility to reclaim history not stay like paralyzed by it and stuck there either. And also rewriting the future has been part of um, the lessons that have shown up. Uh, but for me, it's explained and brought into perspective, recognizing how places like Oaxaca, Guerrero, Costa Chica, Yanga have spoken to my spirit, even at the Yucatan and even within Nuevo León. And so, you know, going on sites and uh, reading a bit of the documents and reading about their migration. And it's brought me to see like the physical recordings as a way of reclaiming just a part of that history that I don't know. 
Um, and you said your your family or your mom's family at least is from Nova Leon, correct? Yes. By any chance, when you were unearthing um, all this information, do you know if do you know how your your African ancestry in Mexico was present? Like, how did they get there? Because there was a lot of ways a lot of African people ended up in Mexico. You know, there's obviously the Spanish and enslaving um, African people and bringing them over to Mexico, but there's also um, another way, like I mentioned before in my other episodes, that Nuevo León is right above Texas, and there was a lot of enslaved Africans who were actually escaping Mm -hmm. from the United States and going into Mexico for freedom. But um, I don't know if you know any of that or if we're able to trace any of that down. See, that's the commitment to feature, like researching and excavating. And I think even having those family talks with maybe distant relatives that still, um, you know, may may have those stories. But I would I would love to be able to find the source, you know, and learn the stories from the source. And I think spiritually for me, also recognizing that and even like your your learning and research and and you sharing that that act of survivance is a spiritual connection too that says like no there's a reclaiming and in that dignity of sharing those stories um that speaks to spirit too you know and so all the possibilities of what can be like this is one of the stories of many that maybe my family fits into and maybe they don't and maybe it's a different story and that will be unearthed but in the meantime like i had to find some spiritual grounding too yeah because i understand that i think a lot of people don't know that um a lot of the times i don't want to say history is lost but a lot of it is lost and a lot of it's also just buried that needs to be unearthed but Mm -hmm. a lot i know a lot of people including myself who experience that like sometimes you're not able to trace very far back and you sort of reach like this dead end kind of and mm-hmm. it's just like this really weird feeling you're like well like you know just wanting to know more about yourself and like you know just discovering yourself and going into a, a journey of the past i would also say that mexico's relationship to with migration is also um, being redefined in many ways and i think of for many haitian refugees who have settled in mexico and particularly in Tijuana, there was this like strong reception of Haitian migrants in settling and creating like this new uh, culture. And I remember reading a story about uh, receiving Haitians in a way of wanting to support uh, grounding in their culture and creating spaces in Tijuana that would honor Haitian um, uh, expressions in collective space. And so I think of that being tied to a greater historical diaspora. And it's also in like that blood memory, just these uh, different fabrics and fibers of Mexico in this way that mainstream and dominant narratives, you know, definitely align within whiteness and are ignored. And so it's just that constant pursuit of reclamation. Um, and the next question I did want to ask you is that I think when we talk about Black Mexico, um, a lot of people should acknowledge that there is a very high and very present prevalence of 
anti-blackness because a lot of people, first of all, don't even think that black people exist in Mexico. And it's set up to be very mutually exclusive. And a lot of that has to do with the United States and their understanding of race. I don't even want to use that term, but I'm pretty sure listeners would know what I'm getting at. And I wanted to ask you because in the United States, for the most part, we don't learn about Mexican history or any other country really that's not the United States and Euro-centered. Do you think if a lot of black and brown students in the United States would uh, be in a space that's more historically holistic and not Euro-centered, do you think that would create the space for black and brown bodies to unite against white supremacy? I'm just taking in the abundance of uh, context in your question, and I think the heart of your question I hear is, how do we uproot anti-blackness through historical research and also an analysis of our ourselves in society today, in systems that are fo- founded in, 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 in anti-blackness? And so it's just really, I think, moving through this process of bringing that and centering historical research and context of this is why we associate and see Mexico through this particular lens. I think one of the starting points to that is uh, unveiling the history of the casta system and the pseudoscience that went into labeling um, just these different racial categories. Also interrogating within our families like why certain words are used to describe more melanated family members and thinking about like the roots of what and implications of what these terms and labels mean and it also brings me to think of well what are the particular racial identities and formations of students in the class when they walk in and what do you mean I'm being anti-black? What is fetishization or what is, you know, colorism? And what are these things that happen and occur? And maybe I don't name explicitly as these things. It's kind of just the way you do. And you don't interrogate that often. And then to create spaces to do that, like the vulnerability that is needed in that, to name it, it causes a lot of discomfort. And it also causes a lot of resentment. And I've seen, you know, that happen amongst students in the classroom where a brown student was telling a black student like their place in uh, in the racial hierarchy that they were above them. And then the black student who is also black and Mexican, you know, having his opinion about the brown student and saying like, no, your people work for me. And it's just like, y'all, our people, our people are up against the thing, the thing that is against us. And like, how do we take the energy and create a sense of solidarity to really address what is occurring to us collectively? So on that solidarity tip, it makes me ask the question, so how do we form solidarity? And how do we form solidarity taking into account that the lived realities and pain 
that exist in our body as trauma, as grief, as painful ruptures that sometimes it's, you know, capitalism, cis heteropatriarchy tells us to numb that, tells us to not tend to those parts of, you know, that somatic energy that like tells us something is wrong, but we can pour into and, you know, not make it right systemically, but make ourselves right to be in the world to move forward in that type of work. It's painful to see because it's, it's, it's deep. And the point to where I also want to bring in that my responsibility of being a mother to black and brown children and, and my responsibility from being Chicana and and learning early on in the community and having a black and brown unity early on embedded in my elementary education, I saw that I was among that. And that's really shaped how I see the world. And I've also gotten my whole life like Victoria, you're this, or why are you concerned? Why are you, why are you hanging out with black folks? Or why, why do you see yourself as black? You, you want to be black, or you want to be this, or you want to be that. And it's like, fam, we got to look at the bigger picture. And when we begin to see that there is an accountability of how we show up in the world for the seven generations who come after us, because they deserve to have their full dignity my children should not be, you know, their their color of their skin should not be questioned before they're born or be praised that it's, you know, well, oh, they're not that dark or, oh, I thought they were going to be darker or they have a good skin color or, oh, their hair is actually really nice. It's like, what is all that being implied and what, you know, we know what lens that's coming from and it's painful. And so to be revolutionary and radical is to then raise children to define themselves. And for me, it's a deep commitment that takes a lot of work because it's not just something I can show up and do in a classroom. It's constantly happening. And I think you brought up a really good point of, I mean, and I brought it up a little bit too, that we're tearing each other apart when in the bigger scheme of things we have a bigger issue that's actually the cause of the issues we currently have. I always say if you look back, the way Europeans mainly were able to take over and dictate the world was by divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. They separated a lot of us and turned on, made us turn on each other. It sucks that today that's still happening, and especially when we're talking about um, black, black Mexico that you know we're tearing ourselves apart and although the colonizers are not physically here we're still a lot of people are still doing the work of the white supremacists without the white supremacists here and that's just some of the divisiveness that the oppressors are still putting together and like you said like although the casta system isn't legally intacted as it was when mexico was known as new spain that shit still pretty much exists socially and it dictates like who's able to get fucking money or resources mm -hmm. or who who's able to access certain jobs and where you're going to end up living are you going to be living in the city or in the outskirts of the city that's very underserved and i think that's something that's pretty prevalent and i think that's still imposing a lens of whiteness according mm -hmm. to standard and it's just no there are people who with abundant whole lives of dignity who are living in a particular beautiful way, grounded in spirituality, in 
in their culture, in their community. And that is a wealth and abundance that like this here in this decolonizing frameworks is kind of like, I'm trying to get to that in a capitalist system. And how do I reject that? And it's just my, my consequence early on in life was like, oh, you know, if you don't do well, we're going to send you to Mexico. And I was like, send me, I would love to go. I would love to explore. I would love to be rooted with my people. I want to know. Like, don't threaten me with, like, a great time. Like, that <laughs> sounds incredible. And also condition, like, to perform within schooling, to distance from that, to say, oh, you know. And even having had family, like, oh, the people can be so primitive. And I was just like, whoa, that is language. I You can't refer to our people as that. And so it's also recognizing, like, I can see the effects of schooling and what pain. And when you're reproducing that, like, love you, fam, but I can't be around you. And I especially cannot have my babies around you in that way. So I'm very protective of them in a world that reminds us daily. Yeah. No, that shit's totally valid and as you should be. Setting up boundaries to protect your peace and your family's peace and to just to protect your circle and your family, that shit's hella important. And... Um, the next question I did want to bring up is about abolition movements and more specifically current abolition movements and solidarity abolition. Usually when we think of abolition, um, you know, the word that comes up to a lot of people's minds is freedom. And a lot of that has to do with like, you know, physical freedom. But I think abolition looks like a lot of different things. And the one that comes up is abolitionist teaching. And as an educator, I'm pretty sure you, you've been introduced to this and you implemented in your classrooms. And I wanted to ask you, what does abolitionist teaching look like for you? And what does that look like, especially in, in a United States educational system that's driven and operated by white supremacy and was created on the beds and the morals and foundation and values of white supremacy? Your question took me on a journey to now and to my uh, um, teaching credential journey. And you've just had me time travel so much within that phrasing and positioning of that question. And to share, you know, Bettina Love offers and frames her book, you know, We Who Are Dark. And in doing so, I think that opens up that abolitionist solidarity you speak to and what really speaks to me particularly this quote she offers too often we think the work of fighting oppression is just intellectual the real work is personal emotional spiritual and communal it is explicit with a deep and intense understanding that loving blackness is an act of political resistance and therefore, it is the fundamental aspect to teaching dark children. And I would add, therefore, is a fundamental aspect to loving black and brown children, to loving and seeing them thrive and grow in their dignity in a world of justice. Abolitionist teaching for me, it became clear when I became a mother. It became an embodied experience when I learned that the act of mothering and birthing children into this world is abolition. I think of 
when you create, creativity is abolition. You are creating a new way. Saying no is part of that spirit of abolition because what we are saying no to that is founded in white supremacist ideals is also saying yes to ourselves, to our people, to our collective vision and dreaming. And we need rest to do that. We need safety to do that. We need spaces to where we can name who we are outside of these labels that are projected upon us before birth. My hope and my aim in teaching is to create spaces that explore that within what we write about, what we talk about, what we read about. But more importantly, it's in the one-on-one connection to who is open to receiving that too, right? Because I, I, I recognize and see often that schooling is not founded in consent. And so when I ask students, like, do I have permission? Like, I invite you to engage with this. And you have permission to tell me no. Now, if you don't, seeing no as what is a new opportunity? What are you saying no to this? And what will you say yes to? Because in a world where we are reminded, and, and, and even having this interview in a classroom, as it's starting to approach uh, opening of this schooling in what folks say are is post-pandemic, but really pandemic 2.0 is what it feels like we're on the brink of. Well, there are fires. Well, the burial sites of Native children are being exposed. Well, the earth is, you know, and climate change. Like, well, all of these things of change, like we are alive in a time of abolition right now. If folks are going to still adhere to old models that have failed us, and have brought us to this point and do not dare to dream of a new way amidst all the signs telling us there has to be something new. And what concerns me most, Juan, to be completely honest, that those among us on this school site who are ready to go back to whatever sense of normalcy and old practices that existed before, and I can hear it and I see it in the ways in which Students and young people are named in mess in, in meetings or in messages, <laughs> want to be surveillanced and p- policed. Y'all didn't take away anything during the pandemic. You didn't really sit with that, and you you were mentioning you know um, about colonizers, like they're descendants of their colonizers, and if that's going to be the framework in which they work, and that's why we are where we are as a society right now. And I wanted to bring up, I want to touch on this a little bit more um, just because I do want to focus on abolitionist teaching. And like I always say, abolitionist teachings can happen in a classroom outside in your personal lives. And I think that's a really great point you brought up because especially in a Eurocentric educational system, education is usually limited to being in the classroom. And sometimes that even comes with being in certain classrooms, and that has to do with money and probably where you live. So I think abolition teaching is something that's very accessible to a lot of underserved students specifically. And I wanted to ask you, when it comes to abolitionist teachings, what 
because one of the words that comes to my mind is decolonization and mm-hmm. like a decolonial framework mm-hmm. theory. I wanted to ask you, what kind of reactions do you get? Because when I think of abolitionist teaching, I'm thinking of the shit that gets people mad and upset because um, I forgot it's a, re- it's a Huey Freeman quote um, from the boondocks. I forgot, but there's two that I think of. I can't have a white person teaching my history and their own comfort level. Mm. And the other one that comes to mind is my truths and my realities and what my future needs to look like comes with your demise. And when we're talking about your demise, we're talking about white supremacy. And I wanted to know as a teacher and as somebody who implements abolitionist teachings and methods and theories in their classroom, what kind of reactions are you met with with students because a lot of students are trained to be in a certain way and I know some students can really push back on that and from administrators or fellow or other teachers who may not understand and catch your drift. Of course it's been met with well she doesn't teach us real history. Um, One year I had two students uh, sit across from me and say well we noticed that you don't teach about any white men or any white people in this class and they were both brown students and I said oh is that something that you feel that you learn in many of your other classes and they said yeah but just not here I said oh I wonder why that is and I also wonder do you ask those other teachers why they don't center the voices of black and brown and indigenous and queer folks within your classes and then they said oh so I think that it 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 does come at odds it is rejecting maybe and I hope not right because I hope that at some point in their schooling system and I know that there are people who are resisting and thinking of another way and it happens to their ability to their support and I know that I've also uh, perpetuated the hegemonic thinking and schooling especially in my early years when I okay just settle in and then you can start to change and subvert But then I also look back and I was subverting in ways within my level of pushing my own boundary of comfort, right? And looking back at myself in my early years of teaching, how I had to perform, and then when I gave myself permission to push. And I think of students similarly learning to perform, and then some students who are just in their whole selves not having to prove anything to anyone who are seen as defiant or disrupting in class and some in many cases those are the ones those are the ones that like oh I can I can just be in this moment and really interrogate and 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 be seen in new ways but to get to your question of abolition is like bold being bold grasping things at the root and boldly saying there's another way and david stovall was talking about fugitive running and so often we think of fugitive running away from some carceral state right uh running away from prisons, right? Fugitive running, running away from slavery. That running away isn't running away from, isn't only running away from that institutional oppression. What if we frame it as in a way that it's running towards freedom, running towards a new way, running towards in that spirit of abolition to a new promise? 
I think people get scared. I think people have not rested. I think people think that they can buy their way out of oppression. In the pandemic and isolation, like this isolation of just, and I, I, I find myself navigating that, like just, you know, how big is my bubble? How big is my community? How big is my circle? And so it's a lot of undoing. I'm in that spirit of thinking of we're running towards a new direction right now. We have to. So based on your response, um, there's a lot of mixed emotions and one of those very prevalent ones because it is something that's very different. A lot of people are very reluctant or just really straight up like, no, you're not teaching right or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I find that to be very truthful, that a lot of people would say things like, you're not doing it the right way, but the right way is really the wrong way because that's a white supremacist Mm -hmm. way of thinking and Mm -hmm. teaching. And the next question I did want to ask you, but before we do get into that, I do want to go into our segment, Eat It and Beat It. So this is a space and chance for you to name drop somebody or something and basically, it's like, eat a bitch and beat it. Hit the, hit the fucking sack, take a walk, kick rocks. Is there anybody, anybody who you want to eat it and beat it? Oh, my God. You bring in the Bay Area um, energy with, uh, you remind me of, like, Too Short, right? And, like, <laughs> the bitch <laughs> energy. Um, so, eat it and beat it. Mm-hmm. Like, so someone who I'm just like over it, like mm-hmm. I'm done. I'm done with your energy. Um, Shit, if they're listening, hey, shout out to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're on Spotify. I would just ultimately say anybody who is, you know what? I'm gonna go with this. Fuck loan collectors, college debt. I want that shit to eat it and beat it. I'm done with college loans and debt and college should be free. Resources, we need we need our ways of living. <laughs> I should not have to pay for childcare to go to work. Um so so those types of things, right? Like but let's, let's let's get rid of them uh that student debt. Yeah, that shit's hella fucking real. Like it's crazy. <laughs> if if college were free, if we were really about that, yeah, I I dream of that world. And also a world where it doesn't have to just be college. It could be Anything. so many other ways of pursuits of like. Fuck, education can happen on your blog. In beautiful ways, in ways of dignity. And it does, it does. And it's just not seen as valid. Yeah, in a capitalist society. And, you know, yeah. speaking of like, you know, when thinking about abolitionist teachings, like a lot of that comes into like, holy fuck, like you really mean to tell me if I can't pay to get educated than what I'm not educated or if I'm already in those systems like sometimes you have to pay to read fucking articles like what kind of shit is that <laughs> like you have yep. to pay 40 fucking dollars to read an article and if you're not a student at a school and you want to read something you might have to pay more it's like how fucking restricted does this shit have to be but you know when it comes back to like thinking like holy shit all these colleges and universities throughout the United States Every one, every fucking one of them was created in the values and morals and expectations of white supremacists. So, you know, a lot of these spaces weren't made for us. So a lot of the things we are experiencing are exactly working how they were supposed to by trying to keep us out. And that's why a lot of us have 
particular and specific experiences in college. And I know that there's freedom dreaming schools. There's mm-hmm. radical dreaming schools that exist and models of of being situated with the community, growing life together, like that decolonial frameworks. It is there and let's let's take care of our people. All right, so I want to do this thing where we say like one, two, fuck student loans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So one, two, fuck, fuck student, student loans. <laughs> so the next question I did want to ask you, um, and you've been teaching for a few years already, is have you seen students engage in solidarity work, especially with this past year and the political climate and experiences that black and brown bodies have faced and, you know, thinking about Black Lives Matter and the type of year we had last year and the fucking year we're still having today. Have you seen students, specifically black and brown students, engage in solidarity work and give each other a hand and really come together in the spirit of destroying white supremacy. Have you seen that in your classroom, maybe even before that? Or what kind of things have you seen? You take me on a journey with that question um, and revisiting, um, you know, I teach ninth grade. And so uh, sometimes the, the, the seeds that are planted or that, you know, how I've been able to cultivate what those seeds that were planted before they've come to me, you know, the students have come to me and then just kind of shaping and, and growing and pouring in in different ways. Or then I don't see them until their senior year <laughs> when they graduate. And if that, and, and in some cases, I recall a student who shared a lot of like this self-discovery of their own identity and their own black and brown identity and just this transformation that I can see also externally in the ways in which they navigated being part of BSU and being part of taking these active steps in their community and then graduating and kind of just seeing them alive in their brilliance. And then I saw them at a Juneteenth festival from afar and I was just, it brought me joy to see that they were in a space of community with other chosen folks. And so on an individual level, like I see this young person moving and going through the course of their time here at Overfell, also being one of many who form a sense of that black and brown unity, who form that sense of a collective liberation. I know it, I believe it, I, I speak it into existence because there's no other way, like that is a prayer. Every time I see a black and brown child walking, I offer them a prayer because they deserve to become elders. I want to see them to become elders and thrive in the world. I've had students who've said, why do you paint this picture of us to be like 30, 40 years old when chances are I'm probably only going to live to my 20s? And that was like the realest shit a student had ever like puzzled me with. And it's painful because I do wonder about this student and like where they're at in their path. But when you see and you see how life is when you see the grieving, I think especially the pandemic has brought this up so much on the collective grieving. No, the collective death that we're witnessing and 
individually processing, sometimes so stagnant in our own homes, and that there's suffering and pain and collective spaces to move through that. I think it's shifted our collective consciousness a bit more. And I do still think of the status quo still functioning, but my work is not in the status quo. My work is with young people. My work is dreaming and collective imaginings, radical imaginings. And so I say that because the pandemic really just brought forth seeing the magnitude. There was so much leading up to that already. So I feel like what students have in their survivance and what so many applaud as resilience. Like, I just don't want these circumstances for people to have to be resilient anymore. I want them to flourish. I want them to thrive. I want to see that collectively. The pandemic has only magnified what was already generations deep. I wish going into this year to really honor rest and to really honor the radical dreaming. And before we can act, we still have to collectively share these dreams, share these new ways of possibility. And in that, I think that it gives us space to heal ourselves a bit more. And that they're coming from frameworks from people who look like them, who speak like them, who are people who they can relate to and not imposed norms that still contribute to our own mental, spiritual, emotional, physical deaths. I think a really good point that you bring up is that it's a whole, you know, that saying, if you're raised a certain way, you're going to turn out to be a certain way when you get older. And um, somebody that we both know named Ron Wilkins, he brought up a really good point um, because he has a children's book. Black and Brown, Unity and Illustration of um, Black Mexicos. The title's around that line. But he told me that he really wanted to make a children's book because once you think about it, when you're young, when you're a kid, you start absorbing and grasping all these things that you're experiencing and the shit that you're exposed to in your community. And I just say shit like not like bad stuff, Mm -hmm. but just like shit like everything. And I think that's a really great way to get to people especially when they're younger. Um, And something that I really admire about you is I know a lot of people who are around the same age group that you're in. And when I think about you, I don't know anybody else who's like you because a lot of people that I see in education who are around your age or are the next educators, a lot of them tend to be sellouts and they encompass the values and morals and expectations of white supremacy and inflict that type of shit on students. I hate fucking seeing that because a lot of, at the end of the day, a lot of people are just being bamboozled as fuck. So I think something that you really brought up a good point, especially when you brought up that student who asked you like, why do you want to paint us out like when we're 40 years old? When you brought that up, you know, it's a clear sign that society has certain expectations of certain people and especially young people like shit, like a lot of young people are going to end up internalizing that and you know, it just makes, it doesn't make you feel good at all. It makes you feel like shit. And I think that you're doing fucking amazing ass work and you're doing something that a lot of people who are in education do not do because I don't know how, I I don't even know how I see you in like the education, like how the United States frames it because I don't 
think of you in, in that lens. Like it's something totally fucking different and better. Um, but that's something I really do admire you about because you're, you're fucking different from everybody else. Everybody's the same generic white motherfucker out here. And people need to understand when I use the word white, I'm not talking about necessarily Euros, Euro descending people because there, there are plenty of black, brown, Asian people who internalize and perpetuate whiteness against other people. So people need to understand that race is a construct and you can just be as white as white people. And the next question I did want to ask you is actually about your family because you did bring up that you are raising black and brown children. And I wanted to ask you, like, what are some things that you do to help them facilitate joy, especially at a young age and the type of person that you are? And, you know, just things like to empower them and about their history. Like, what do you tell them about Mexico? or anything like that if you do? So off top, we do dance parties. <laughs> um, my partner, he's great for just making sure like our Sunday afternoons especially is music and, you know, we could dance out and move out, you know, those energies from our body and sometimes before bed is the best. And some of, you know, finding finding YouTube create, uh, creative YouTube channels that are animated. So I think it's called Jules that has um, Jules and Gracie, I think um, is another platform that their beautiful remix like childhood songs and the animation our children can see themselves in. Um, and just always looking like for that culturally reflective sources of books, of music. And so now they like to do their own like uh, navigating. My, my son and daughter, my sons and daughter can like navigate from a blank Google screen. And my two year old can go to like Disney Plus, go to YouTube and put on all of his favorite videos. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> um, but really, they see these commercials, and my daughter said she wants to look like Rapunzel with long blonde hair. And I'm like, we don't need to put that as a standard. Your curly, beautiful brown hair is more than enough. Like, you are more than enough. Like, that, you're where it's at, babe. It's just reminding me of, like, how pervasive that is. And so for every message they get of that, like, I have to make sure I'm honoring and cultivating within them for them to see themselves as beautiful. And so affirmations, having various like, spaces where they are playing with other black and brown children. My, my children are very social and friendly, and so they'll try to approach people. And sometimes that's met with, you know, beautifully. And sometimes I've seen it with, like, other kids on the playground, like, they don't want to play with my kids. Also having to have conversations around that and like sensing and being mindful and protecting. We live in a community and it's very rare that, you know, they may have white children on a playground with them. Like it's not too often. And I think about there are spaces that we go and there are spaces that we don't go. Just having certain conversations with them that they can digest and they they can name and sense and feel. At one time, at one point, they're like, "Mama, we're like you're white in comparison to us." And I was like, "Well, wait, pump your brakes. Like, my skin is light brown, 
and um, we, we talked about different skin colors and um, different backgrounds. And I was like, okay, how do they see me in this world? How do they see themselves? Will they see themselves in me? Will they always see themselves in their father? Will they always see themselves as themselves in the world? And like the greatest hope is like for them to fully see themselves in themselves and know that their ancestors and future reside in them and to call on their ancestors or on us as their family and on their future to guide them in that intuition. I want my children to be able to listen to themselves and feel that they are making the best informed decision for themselves, even if it goes against my wishes or my desires or hopes. Like I want them to honor their full agency of themselves, guided with values and principles, of course, right? So it's it's a beautiful journey and it's hard because some days I'm like, I don't want to talk about that right now. I just want to be home and rest. And we give ourselves breaks too because we talk about dreams and we talk about what they imagine and what they want to create. So it's not like it's social justice all the time in every fabric of our lives. And it is because it may not be the academic language we're talking about in the classroom. It's in the community, the survivance, the spirituality, the emotional, like ways that we connect with each other that go beyond and the embodied experience of what it means for us to raise each other in that dignity. So it's hella work. <laughs> it brings, it brings um, a lot of joy and a lot of growing pain. Like I said, it's a prayer every time I see black and brown children out in the world. So you know that it's going to be a daily prayer in raising my own. Mm -hmm. But that's why we're here. <laughs> we are going to conclude this episode, but I did want to ask you one final question. Is there <laughs> anything else you want to add or say to anybody based on the topics and themes that we talked about today? That don't waste your time trying to have it be perfect if it's rooted in true values, centered in love and justice and making things better for the people who come after. Set that offering into the world. Whatever gift, whatever way, skill, practice, creation that comes through you, surrender that into the world, grow it, see what it does, it, you know, see how far it can grow. Like, you'd be surprised because don't operate from that perfectionist uh, mentality. And I say that, mind you, I, I have my own work. I'm trying to <laughs> take that <laughs> into account for my own wisdoms. But um, it's a Pisces thing. Be, be mindful of who you share with, but also like who you share with also gives permission for other people to dream bigger, too. Lovely. All right, everybody, so that concludes our episode, and I'll see y'all next time. So, like I always say, 